Welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, Season 3, Episode 17. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm the Food Professor, Sylvain Chalabois. Well, Sylvain, you are back from a busy travel week. Lots of third-party research on your mind uh, to share in this episode. Uh, You published uh, some research that we chatted about on our last episode, so that's now published, so we will touch on that. And uh, you seem to be stirring things up a little bit in social media about the uh, Chinese-owned baby powder plant in Kingston and the goings-on there. And and our very special guest is Susan Karinsky-Robertson, retail reporter, from the Global Mail. That's right. Yeah. No, I'm so happy that Susan was able to join us uh, this week. And uh, I mean, it, we've never had a journalist join us for the podcast, so it's it's about time. And I'm I'm actually really glad Susan was our first. Fantastic. Well, it's a great interview. We talk about tradecraft and and perspectives. So I think it's a very illuminating. Uh, discussion for those who don't know anything about how stories get written or how reporters do the job they do. So I think, uh, you know, our approach was, uh, was, was just kind of educating the folks who listen to this podcast about how things get uh, and approaches from a, a real professional, like 14, 14 years, the globe, 17 mills, 17 years reporting. So it's a great interview. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's jump into the news, or at least the news on social media. So, like I said, you seem to be uh, interested this weekend uh, with a lot of response uh, on social media about this uh, plant that came to be. We've mentioned it actually on the podcast before. Uh, that's using Canadian dairy for export to China. Now, isn't this a, a good thing? Isn't finding international markets for Cana- Canadian dairy ostensibly uh, a good thing? Isn't that what what began this journey? Talk about your perspectives around uh, what's happening in Kingston. Well, I mean, it, it started. The conversation on Twitter started with uh, with uh, milk dumping, uh, milk surpluses. Uh, we actually mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. believe that it is an issue. Unlike what the dairy farmers of Canada are telling Canadians, mm-hmm. we do believe it's an issue. Who's the we? Uh, who's you, the we in that sentence? So we is uh, Dal and a team over at McGill University. I was actually meeting okay. with them on Friday in Montreal. So we have some really good data. We can't release the data yet because, um, mm. as you know, Michael, milk dumping is it's a controversial issue in industry, yeah. and because uh, they 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 want to. to uh, convey to the public that supply management is perfect. Uh, there mm. are no negative externalities related to supply management, but there are some. I mean, I think it needs, it's important to recognize that there are surpluses, and 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 I've always advocated for uh, figure out a plan to manage surpluses. Let's acknowledge mm. that there's a problem, and let's let's because supply management is the perfect system to deal with surpluses. We have the CDC, the Canadian Dairy Commission. We have marketing boards across the country we can do this and so often farmers say well we can't really process our own milk and ship it overseas and i say and i say mm-hmm. well there is a case in kingston mm-hmm. <laughs> a chinese company built a 338 million dollar plant subsidized by canadian taxpayers mm-hmm. uh, which which and- is not unusual i mean it's not unusual for companies any companies to come into Canada province and, and receive government funding to start and hire people. No, it's not, no. Right? That's, That's right. not unusual. I guess, no, I guess what you're, what, I mean, you're using it for, not using it, but you're talking about it for a couple of reasons. One is they have a process where they take dairy and process it for export, which is kind of interesting, I think, in the context of what you're thinking about milk dumping. That's one thing you're thinking about. Well, what the, else the, are you the, thinking the about? The milk supplied is partially subsidized. That's one thing. The other thing, okay. The milk is by intended for by us. That's right. Every day, and, every day, and so, we are every we are single day. And supply management day. is intended to produce what we need. So the milk that's going to China is actually was for Canadians, really. Hmm. So if mm-hmm. we are to play the export game, let's be honest with ourselves and okay. say it to Canadians, you know, be honest. So if are we exporting? So if so, let's actually make this work. But forever, dairy farmers always said, we can't do this. We can't export mm. product, but we've actually allowed a Chinese company to do it for us. And that really is the one thing that upsets me a little bit and upsets a lot of people, given the fact that we also have a shortage of baby formula. Yeah, still going, <laughs> right still now. ongoing and getting worse, not better. And that's getting so worse, not better. So we have subsidized Canadian milk going to Kingston, yeah. being processed, and all of it is shipped to China. So it's there's a lot of things that are absolutely wrong with this picture, mm-hmm. I think. And 
all of a sudden, like last year, I raised the point with the baby formula storage. Well, by the way, we actually are we do manufacture baby formula in Canada, yeah. but now this time around, because of of the China story that is mm. really bothering a lot of people i think people mm-hmm. are starting to say well is china really because when you actually look at the board of the chinese company the former mm. president of the dairy farmers canada is on there mm. Mm. okay and he used to work for the cane dairy commission and the dairy Commi- the cane dairy commission is on record mm. uh for being involved with the chinese plant in kingston so there's there's lots of stuff that we don't know about that really is bothering me a little bit you know what i think we need we need a special dairy rapporteur. That's what we need. <laughs> that's what we need for this. A special dairy rapporteur. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, that would, that would solve everything. Sorry to break it to you. I thought I was the rapporteur. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and no. We need someone who's inherently conflicted, too. As, as, as former job. President Dush would say, we need a French word for rapporteur. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we you know, need a French it, name for entrepreneur. We need a French name for rapporteur. Uh, it, there's a story in the in the paper actually today that's related to dairy, where Unilever and Nestle have both downsized. Did you, did you see this? Uh, shrinkflation to below 500 milliliters, triggering yep. a tax on them. And, yep. and shout out to Canadian producer Chapman's, who's going in the other direction and standing up against this. What do you? What do you make of this? I mean, it's just very blatant shrinkflation, and then now well, that my, now, now my there's a tax on it because it's a it's a explain the tax to the people why there's suddenly tax on on good. My, my op-ed today is actually about that about the, mm. that, that that exact point. Uh, it's called uh, death taxes and shrinkflation, mm. and uh, it's in the Toronto Sun uh, this morning, and and basically. Uh, we know that shrinkflation exists. It has impacted most uh, sections of the grocery store. In fact, it's sure. actually going into fresh now. We see smaller uh, portions of, of, of strawberries and blueberries. But the I thing feel better about, about how much bacon I eat, though, I have to say, because I, I buy a, pa- <laughs> a pound of bacon and I eat the whole thing. Oh, my God, did I just eat a pound of bacon? I realized I had like seven strips. So I, I do feel better about myself. So it's there's a an upside of strip to now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's Sorry, how I interrupted you. You're, talk, you're, talk, you're talking about your more serious things. Let's talk about uh, what's go, what the hell's going on here. Well, so essentially, if, if you're a manufacturer, you're not careful about uh, our fiscal regime. Uh, you uh, you end up selling a snack instead of a basic grocery product, basically. Uh, and there are thresholds that you need to follow. That's for cake, tablets, granola bars, ice cream. You name it. If if there's a single serving. Uh, if you sell a pack of six self uh, single serve uh, serving, then uh, you uh, you may actually end up being under 500 milliliters, for example, mm. for ice cream. So that becomes a quant- snack, right? I mean, it becomes like a snack or something under the yeah, rules. Yeah, it becomes that- a snack, and and that's that is taxable. So you basically, as you're trying to reduce quantities and keep the same price but at the end of the day you're basically dinging the consumer at the till because they have to pay a tax because it is now considered as a snack ready Mm. to eat snack instead of being a basic grocery product so the i actually read the entire uh memorandum over the weekend there are 156 articles there are 156 different Example, it's super complicated, and yes, but my, my take, right, yeah. my take, it's wrong to tax food unless it's food mm. service. I mean, mm. the counter-ready stuff. If you go to the grocery store and you're like picking a sandwich and a salad, fine, you can tax that. But anything else, I mean, some of these products go into children's lunch boxes. For goodness' sake, you would advocate in a situation. Well, it's obviously shrinkflation, but it's also. We should relook at the the way that food is taxed and that that somewhat arbitrary well, it's, it's the, under five hundred quantities. And when you look at yeah. the uh, fiscal law, right? if you look at mm. the um, at the at the act itself, I think we need to revisit what a single serving is, and also look at the number of units uh, sold per package. So, for example, mm. if you go down to five granola bars or five whatever then you are tax versus six which is absolutely ridiculous hmm. you know so well, that's the thing about uh, yeah. about this uh, this law and and frankly i mean when 
when you when you look back over the last year, a lot of people are pointing fingers at Galen Weston for making food prices higher. But they never look, most people never look at our fiscal regime. Our fiscal regime is a mess. New research that you forward me along is uh, telling us that uh, the Canadians generally think conservatives are better at um, fighting for food affordability or more more trusted yeah. NDP second, notwithstanding Jagmeet Singh's uh, theatrics. Uh, they came in second with, I guess, the Liberals' third. Talk Which about the survey. Which is a bit surprising. And- I mean, uh, he seems to be taking some uh, support away from the Liberals. I think. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? What are you? What are your thoughts on the survey? T- tell us uh, the people a little bit about the survey. Just to comment on that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a market uh, research survey, uh, and it's an interesting survey. It came out last week. Uh, I think it's going to get some some press this week. It's it's a very very political uh, survey, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is something we don't do at the lab. But I thought it was interesting to see that uh, uh, conservatives uh, actually have the upper hand when it comes to food affordability and and sustainability in agriculture. Yeah, and I think it, it has a lot to do with the fact that most Canadians absolutely see liberals as a urban centric party. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. it 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 it's it's understood by many city dwellers, but um, when you go out there in agriculture, I don't think that people um, value uh, the know how of the Liberal Party when it comes to agriculture in general, which I thought was interesting when you think about the carbon tax, when you think about sure. you know fertilizer targets that we spoke about, uh, that's certainly something that uh, is going to impact. Uh, the support of the liberals over the next over the next little while, and of course there are other issues like Bill C two eighty four we talked about last week uh, for uh, for the carbon tax, and and also yep, yep. they're looking at they're looking at protecting supply management with a new bill, making it uh, making supply management off the table, taking supply management off the table anytime Canada negotiates a new uh, free trade agreement with anybody. Wow. Yeah, let's. Good luck to them on that. Thoughts and prayers uh, in those negotiations. <laughs> well, uh, it's gonna it's gonna pass. It's gonna pass. But well, it's gonna I, pass. I but it, it's, it's not just gonna be symbolic. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, you, you can't put. Look, our government says we can't put this on the table. The uh, foreign nations negotiating will just you know ignore that because it's just nonsense. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, the study that you released. We mentioned it briefly. Anything to add? You, we talked about it briefly. It's now in the public domain. Uh, it was really about uh, how many times an error is made in a grocery store, and, and it turned out a lot, but the grocers, I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to put words in your mouth, were pretty good at addressing those issues. Any other thoughts yep. or learnings out of that study? We'll attach some, uh, a link to the study in the show notes, but any, any more thoughts on that study? Well, I mean, uh, two-thirds of Canadians have actually noticed an error on their grocery uh, receipt mm-hmm. in the last year, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know about you, but I thought that was a high number. It's high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. high. And going back to our earlier conversation about uh, taxes on food, 9.2% mm. of people noticed that there was a tax on an item that shouldn't have been taxed. Mm. And and frankly, I, again, that is so confusing now. We don't know. I don't know about you, but I don't know what what can, should be taxed and what shouldn't be taxed at the grocery store with eighteen twenty thousand different products. And so yeah. that's certainly something that is uh, coming up more and more uh, as a, as an issue. And uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people just don't necessarily look at their grocery receipt at all and uh, because they don't have the time and they're just leaving money probably behind as a result but the Mm. the one uh one province where there's i we actually rank provinces in terms of the percentage of respondents who have actually noticed mistakes on receipts in the last 12 months which which is the number one province where we've seen the most people noticing an error we think uh bc Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Ah, Newfoundland followed by Saskatchewan. Huh. And, the, uh, and the province with the best accuracy, if you will, New Brunswick mm. and Manitoba. So Ontario's feels, in the middle. It, 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 I guess it's a little random. or do, I mean, people in Newfoundland have maybe a little less choice, so maybe go to the same place more often. I don't know. Any theories yeah. behind I don't know if there's any theory. I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe they right just, uh, you know, they actually look more, more and, and they chat and <laughs> yeah. they, yeah, and, and yeah, they yeah. feel Pay comfortable. 
But here's the good news for grocers, though. Uh, we've actually asked people uh, if they were satisfied uh, when they actually submitted a complaint to their grocer. And uh, so the vast majority of Canadians uh, were satisfied with how grocers dealt with their complaints when they saw that there was a mistake or they had to return a food product. Uh, so the one province where uh, the level of satisfaction is above 46%, it is Newfoundland as well. So that's interesting. I think it tells you how mm. I think Newfoundlanders are very comfortable reporting a problem and basically asking for a refund or or something. Yeah. So okay. so Newfoundland is number one, and Quebecers are uh, the second most satisfied as well. The least satisfied, Nova mm. Scotia, where you are. <laughs> I think I think that I think there's a connection there. I think that's not right. Yeah, it's so base. It's all about service. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, lo- we, lo- but, we love you. We love you, Sobies. Um, uh, let's let's yeah. let's do an update in the story we talked about last uh, week. Internationally indicted criminal, not Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin uh, yes. agreed uh, that uh, they would extend the Ukraine deal. Nobody knows how long. Any updates to the story that we talked about? Any updates on that? Are you, so the grain deal has been extended, but nobody knows how long, for how long. And so mm. some people are saying it's 120 days. Uh, I think the pressure, I mean, you know that uh, President Ping is actually in uh, Russia yes, right speak. now. I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, I actually do believe that uh, they're going to be talking about trades a lot. Yeah. Uh, and you see him as a, you see him as a potential uh, peacemaker, a potential peacemaker, because it's yeah. you know I, I I I don't think it's you know who knows what's in anyone's mind, but the, the media and press and folks who think a lot more about this than I do seem to think that they. Uh, he's not very happy with things that are going on, that they like stability, and this is not a very stable environment. No, they're not they pleased with the war, no, for sure. And, uh, and of course, they're concerned about grain and food security. And uh, Russia is a big player along with, with, uh, with Ukraine. So I actually do think that, uh, that China is, is very powerful and powerful enough to, to force Russia's hand mm. Uh, mm-hmm. making sure that grains do leave the regions or else we're all affected like worldwide, even us. I mean, we, I don't think Canadians actually know this, but we're, that grain deal was very important, is important. Mm-hmm. And okay. so I'm happy that it's been right extended. Here and frankly, my guess is that it won't end uh, ever mm-hmm. until the end of the conflict. Let's take a break from the news. Let's get to our fantastic interview with Susan Kerensky-Robertson, retail reporter. From the Globe and Mail. Susan, welcome to the Food Professor Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm thrilled to have you on the mic. Uh, it's uh, wonderful. It's, uh, Sylvain and I were just talking about uh, this is the first journalist we've had on the podcast, right, Sylvain? So it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Having Susan as our first journalist is mm-hmm. not a coincidence, I don't think. Her mm-hmm. craft is amazing. Just so yeah. you know, we think you're amazing. You've done some great work uh, on different files, and we can get yeah. to that a little bit later. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And so Van was very much looking forward to being on the other side of the mic. He gets to ask the questions this time because he, uh, <laughs> so that's, that's <laughs> yeah. a bit of extra fun, right, so Van? Exactly. My uh, turn. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, experience, and, and what you do for a living. Yeah, well, um, I, I grew up in Scarborough, Ontario. Shout out Scarborough. Um, and yeah, I've been with the Globe and Mail for, gosh, it's hard to believe, but almost 14 years now. Um, wow. Most of that time in our business section, uh, I've reported over the years on the marketing industry, the marketing and advertising mm-hmm. industry, on uh, the media industry in Canada. And for the last few years, uh, following the retirement of my wonderful colleague, Marina Strauss, I've been mm-hmm. our retailing reporter. Well, fantastic. And and did you always want to be a reporter? I think you've got a, a graduate degree in, in uh, reporting or, or in media or journalism, right? Uh, did yeah, you always yeah. want to be a journalist? I always thought it was really interesting. You know, when mm-hmm. I was um, when I was younger, I always wrote. Uh, it was something that was part of my life since since I can remember, really. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, when I figured out that this was something I wanted to try to pursue, I did it for a while. Uh, I was living actually in Montreal uh, mm-hmm. for a number of years, and I started out as a freelancer uh, in Montreal, writing for a few different publications there. And then went to school at Carleton University. This was for the mm-hmm. master's program in journalism, mm-hmm. which was 
hugely helpful to me, uh, not mm. only in learning about the craft, but also mm. connecting me with uh, on-the-job experience and internships, which were really the most valuable uh, thing I could ever have done, uh, and which led me to the Globe and Mail. Now, when you get together with your fellow journalists and you start talking about podcasts, do you do you all go roll your eyes with people like Sylvan and I are <laughs> pretending to be journalists? And you know, there's a million podcasts out there. Does it drive you a bit crazy, or how do you how do you think about that? Because now oh, everybody's hardly. suddenly no. a journalist. You know, how do you think about that? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with podcasts. Actually, I mm. I absolutely love them. I listen to a wide variety, and I think it's great. I think the power of audio storytelling is really amazing. And, you know, I've been a fan of radio for years and years. Mm. And I just think the sort of democratization of radio is really interesting. I don't think all podcasts are good, but I I love the variety out there. I love that you Mm. can find any kind of a niche uh, of of something that you're interested in, and you can probably find some content about it out there. Um, I think it's wonderful. You know, it's it's incredible. I mean, I think about the various podcasts that I listen to and you know, I listen to a podcast that breaks down opera arias. I listen to another <laughs> podcast about, you know, foreign affairs. I listen yeah, to another yeah. podcast about linguistics. I mean, it's mm. that's an Which amazing has nothing thing. to do with your own beats at all. No, no, yeah, my yeah. tastes are Catholic for sure. But yeah. I, you know, I listen to all these different things. And yeah. I, you know, I think that's amazing that I'm taking in that kind of information on a day-to-day basis. I, I really love it. I love the space. Yeah, last question on that. Do you ever find yourself listening and you go, oh, I would have asked that question differently or only if oh, only totally. they would have asked the question differently. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to turn it off. It's hard to yeah, turn it yeah, off for sure. Yeah. But um, it's, a, it's actually funny. But when I was at Carleton, um, I did my, you know, every master's student in Carleton's journalism program has to do one major project, almost mm. equivalent, um, sort of an equivalent to what in another master's program would be your master's thesis, except we have to do mm. a big piece of journalism. And I actually chose radio for my master's project. Mm. I love writing and I ended up going into newspapers, but mm. I have like a piece of my heart that's always in radio. Mm. So I chose to do a radio project for mine. And um, and so I, you know, my my love of audio is abiding for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, now we so many questions, but before we jump in uh we wanted to congratulate you on being nominated for a prestigious yes. national newspaper award and, and right so van you 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 said to me uh, even off mic and we wrote it here you were surprised that it hadn't you hadn't been nominated before no it, i was because uh, well, you i saw your post on linkedin and and you wrote that you it was it was the first time you you were nominated i was yeah honestly yeah. i was a bit surprised yeah and the oh. story you're nominated for has nothing to do with food right that's right. Yeah, I yeah. um I have long been um, actually ever since I was a little girl, uh, I've I've watched ballet and been ballet. fascinated by yeah. ballet. And um I started uh, writing a little bit for our art section a few years ago actually. I would write from time to time uh feature stories about ballet um when I found stories that were interesting. And when I found out that Karen Kane was sort of bidding her farewell to the National Ballet with this production of Swan Lake that she was creating. I thought, what a wonderful story. And so I had really the pleasure of going behind the scenes with this production, tracking it. I did not expect it was going to be a two and a half year project when I started (laughs) it. Because, of course, the pandemic uh, got a little bit in the way of many, yeah. many arts organizations, including that one. Um, so it ended up being this massive, it, it started, long your, project. This, your, your project started before COVID? Yes, it did, because okay. I set out to follow the the making of this production, and that had been slated to go on stage in 2020. It was supposed to be her, you know, it was her 50th year with the company. It was when she was retiring. It was all set to go. And then, of course, we all know what happened. And so yeah. I had thought it was going to be a, you know, six to eight month project, and it turned into something much, much longer, you know, talking to dancers while they were in quarantine, you know, following this production while it was on hold and then, you know, resuming when they, when they came back. And so, um, you know, I, it was really just a story I was fascinated in and I loved getting to tell it and, um, and to be nominated for it is just, it's really such an honor. Um, it's, it's wonderful, uh, to, to have your work recognized. It's really not easy. These awards to, they're, they're very, um, their standards are very high. And so just the nomination is really, really such a deep honor. And I'm actually 
nominated twice uh, because in another category. I thought, yeah. 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 That, what's the other category? <laughs> yeah. The other category is sustained news coverage. And, and quite appropriately, uh, I'm part of a team of Globe and Mail reporters. That's not just me on that nomination. And we're all nominated together for sustained news coverage of the Hockey Canada file uh, this past yes. year. Um, yes. So it's really appropriate. Both Both of these nominations actually are for stories that are really a team effort. Uh, the sustained category, obviously, because it's literally a team that's nominated, but even in the arts award, you know, the the secret of these these stories is, you know, there's one person on this byline, but there's just a team of talented people getting these things off the ground. And so, um, you know, one of the things I said to my editor was, you know, this is such a, a celebration for the team. There's so many people who go into mm-hmm. making these things come to life. So it's really, it's really wonderful. Well, congratulations for uh, for you. both nominations. Yeah, Thank hope you, you win. When when <laughs> will you find out that uh, that you win or not? Oh, uh, it's that we have the um, the gala evening in May, I believe. May uh, early okay. May. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck to you oh, and, and you. to the team. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well. It is a podcast about food, so we have to go back to, <laughs> yes. to talking about food here. So, tell us about about the food beat beat in general. Uh, tell us about your craft, uh, your approach in general. Do you pitch stories to your editors? Do you pick your own? How to for for people who are who are not familiar with journalism or food journalism? How how, do, how does you, how does your world work? Yeah, well, I'll start with the last one of those questions. You know, do I pitch stories or do, do just my editor? I mean, that's actually one of the great things about this job is it's so collaborative. So, you know, some things come from me. That's actually, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you have a beat reporter, right? So that we get to know people across the industry. We develop these connections. We're watching the industry closely. And so as a consequence, you know, hopefully we hear about things that are happening. People come to us when they think there's something newsworthy. And then I can bring that to my editor and say, this is what's going on. We need to write about this. So often that is what happens. And so I will bring Mm. stories to my editor. But um, as I said, it's very collaborative. So there are many times actually when my editor comes to me with an idea. Um, and so one of the things that, that's great actually about that relationship is my head is very much in it. Uh, my editor takes a, a wide view of someone who's not really immersed in the subject. And so between us, you know, sometimes there'll be sort of a big picture idea that, that my editor might have that I haven't thought of because I'm kind of in, in, you know, in the middle of the forest. Right. And, um, right. and he sees the whole thing. And so it's great. We, it's, it really varies in terms of how the ideas get developed on a day-to-day basis. But um, how I approach stories is simply, you know, trying to find out what types of things across the industry we think a, are newsworthy, obviously, and B, that, you know, I can help readers to understand better. Um, I think that it's been a really fascinating couple of years, uh, particularly for our relationship to food, right? Uh, our relationship to the price of food, certainly. But also, I mean, think about the role that food played in the pandemic. I really feel like people have a different relationship to food than they did just a couple of years ago. It's a very personal thing. Um, and it's also the part, I, I covered the entire retailing industry, not just food, but it's the part of the retail industry that's in the in, in a way it's most personal because, you know, you can make decisions about your pocketbook on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you know, I'm not going to buy that sweater or I'm going to save up for this thing, or I'm not going to, I'm going to choose to do this. You can't choose not to eat. You can't choose not to buy your food. You have to eat. And so it's a very personal part of the retail business. And, you know, as we've seen, um, it can, it can make people feel very stressed out. It can, it really affects your day-to-day quality of life. And so it's a really fascinating area. Mm -hmm. Is there a story that you were most pleased about over the last, uh, you know, 14 years in the, in the food space specifically was there one story that you thought oh this is the one contribution i'm proud of uh oh gosh i, all 14 I can certainly years. name a couple yeah <laughs> it's been a while already <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well, you know, it's is funny. there is there I'm, one story that stands out? You know, I'm proud of different stories for different reasons. Um, 
you know, I, I mentioned my colleague Marina, who was a wonderful reporter and, you know, absolutely dominated this, the retailing beat for so many years. She obviously reported a lot on the situation, uh, between Tim Hortons and its franchisees during her tenure. She really broke that story open and, um, and led that story. And, I, I've kind of picked up that thread, which is actually still going. So, you know, that's top of mind just because I've been handling it recently. Uh, that's been a fascinating thing to explore the, you know, the relationship between a company and its franchisees and how it affects things. Um, I've really enjoyed sort of reporting that on that. For that particular story, I mean, you, you've been on top of it. Like you've been oh, thanks. really capturing the, the essence of, uh, of what was going on with ACF, with RBI. I mean, it was, I mean, I, I thought your articles were really well articulated, explaining to the audience exactly what was going on. It wasn't an easy story. It's not an easy story for many franchisees. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated one, too. Mm-hmm. And I thought your pen really did a good job explaining to the public exactly what was going on. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, what's fascinating about that story to me is it's almost it's like a, a corporate version of the conversation we're all having, right? To what extent is inflation like who who bears the responsibility of that is the question that so many people across the country have been asking and you know obviously the tensions between Tim Hortons and its franchisees as i mentioned go back before my time on this beat and they are complex and you know they have a lot of different layers to them but most recently you know the franchisees and their concerns about profitability have been tied to the cost of supplies and the cost of to some extent You're of food absolutely right, right? Yep. And, you know, and to me, that whole conversation about food inflation, it, it's always a conversation that goes back to you think about food as this long supply chain with so many points along the way. And it's so hard to pull apart, you know, at what point of that supply chain is someone taking a little extra off the top because prices are going up anyway? Is someone padding their pocket? Is someone pa- just simply forget about profiteering? Is someone just passing on the cost because they say it's not my job to hold the bag on this. And unfortunately, because the consumers Mm -hmm. are the last part of that chain, consumers often end up holding the bag, right? It's the same conversation that the franchisees are having, right? They're saying this food coming in the back door, it's too expensive. And Tim Hortons is saying, well, actually, we haven't even passed on all the price increases we've experienced. We've taken some of that pressure off. That's what they say. Um, yes. And they say, you know, it's coming in our back door and it's costing us too much. And it's then, then the question is, well, you know, are you going to go to the farm gate and argue with the farmer? Are you exactly. going to go to, you know, are you going to go to, gosh, I mean, whatever powers that be you believe in and argue about weather events in California. I mean, it's, it's such a complex picture and inflation itself is, you know, there's a lot of blame being thrown around, but it's such a, such a complex subject. And so I'm rambling a little yeah. bit, but I find that Tim Horton story fascinating because it is really this microcosm of this larger conversation we've all been having. It's, it's also a matter of trust, eh? Like who's trusting who and uh, should we trust the information given to us, et cetera? Yeah, it's, and that leads to conflict when there is no trust or little trust. And absolutely. that's certainly a good case study for that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, yeah. And, you know, you look at Tim Hortons and there is a history of conflict. And so it makes sense that when a subject like this comes up, there would be further conflict because that, as you say, that's just such a good point. That trust hasn't been established. Um, and to some extent, you know, it's the same thing with Canadians. Um, now, my, my colleague David Mil- Milstead wrote, I thought, one of the great stories about food inflation in Canada. He wrote a story analyzing the way that many of the grocers don't pull apart their um, their financials. Uh, many of them, all, obviously, as you know, also own pharmacies and other types of retail operations. And you know, he wrote a story analyzing the fact that it's really tough to even look at the public company's financials and figure out what the picture of profitability is because some people don't have that information. In a vacuum of information, you know, then it comes back down to, to your point, Sylvain, it comes back down to trust, right? And so I think, uh, then the question actually, is, do Canadians trust these retailers? I, I, I think I was cited in that in David's article. <laughs> I'm sure you were, yeah. I, I, about, yeah, I remember, I think, wasn't it last fall or something? 
Yeah, it was a little while ago, but I thought I, yeah. I always refer back to it because to me that yeah, is I remember, absolutely uh, the crux of the issue, right? This because I got to tell you, I mean, detail. and Michael yeah. knows this. I've been out there saying, listen, there's it's it's there's no evidence of profiteering at retail, and uh, if there is, I mean, I don't know who's looking at what evidence, but we can't find anything really. And we're there's about fifteen percent of Canadians actually who believe that again, Western is is not responsible for food inflation. It's been a tough ride. It's been, it's been really like I, I suspect that you, David, myself, we've we've all received those nasty emails coming from people who actually firmly believe uh, that uh, grocers are to blame. So it's been really tough for the last uh, I'd say six to nine months. Well, and it's it's tough because, as I said, I can't cite detail disproving that either. You know, it's. We can't exactly. find the proof of it, but we also can't find the de- de- the definitive anti-proof. And exactly. that vacuum inf- of information, I would argue, is a big problem. You know, we can't prove that there isn't there aren't products where selectively retailers have raised the price maybe a little bit more than is totally necessary. We can't prove mm. that, and so. I can't tell Canadians when they ask me, I, you know, definitively there's zero profiteering going on here. I think with like a lot of things, it's probably a little bit of both, right? If we had to guess, it's probably reasonable to guess that there are some products where the price has been raised more than is totally necessary and maybe even more than the suppliers have raised their costs. Because we don't have that level of detail of that picture, it's really, really yeah. hard to pull apart, and right? How do and, you define and measure greed or profiteering in retail right. I mean, how, where's the line and that's yes, really exactly. the other problem well yeah. and how much profit is too much profit when exactly. the the base the base revenue has gone up as much as it has you know um people i think have it's it's that basic thing right the sales have gone up so much uh, just the base level of revenue has gone up so much of course the profit has gone up in step with that because it goes up you know, they go up hand in hand and the grocers can argue our margins haven't changed. But when people see these record profits in dollar amounts, I think they're asking reasonable questions of like, well, at what point when the sales are going up this much is, you know, as you say, what's, what's the, what's the reasonable level of profit? So when Galen Weston went before the House of Commons committee, you know, he said, obviously making a reasonable profit is an important part of running a business. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, but I think Canadians are asking, you know, at what point does it, is it, does it become appropriate to try to take some of the pressure off of us as well? And that's tough, right? That's tough when you're dealing with for-profit businesses, who are ultimately not charities, but also I don't want to, you know, make excuses for them either. I think it's, yeah, it's such a complex topic. Um, and so much more complex really than, you know, the, the discourse on social media. Uh, Absolutely. You, you, you took the baton from Marina, uh, with whom I've worked with for a decade or so. And, uh, she was great. You, you're into food business reporting, uh, and you've been, you've been involved with, uh, with that, um, with that topic for well over a decade now yourself. What, what has changed over the years? Uh, what, what's different now compared to, say, when you started? Well, I actually do think that what's different is people are much more aware. Uh, certainly, you know, as I said before, over the course of the pandemic, I think people became much more aware. Like, when did ever anybody talk about supply chains or find <laughs> exactly. themselves interested in supply chains, right? And now it's like you can talk over coffee with a random person and they'll they'll talk about the supply chain crisis. That's yeah. obviously yeah. different, right? I think yeah. people are people are uh, becoming more aware of the the kind of web of systems that bring the foods to their plate and mm-hmm. want to be more aware of those systems yeah. as well. They want to be more informed and I think that's a big big difference. Probably, it probably goes back to when there was uh, in the early days of the pandemic and still today uh, shortages of items on the shelf, which is a bit of a shock, I think, for Canadians uh, when they're like, wait, I remember I, I spent, and Sylvain, I know you did as well, a lot of time with media explaining supply chains and just in time and, you know, how many warehouses have been eliminated anyway. So we get into, into that. Let's change tax a little bit. Um, advice for retailers and brand owners listening to this podcast from you as a, as a professional. What are the top tips on dealing with professionals like yourself, on dealing with the media, with the, on dealing with the media? What are the, what are the best practices? And, 
and what should they avoid doing? What's what's your experience and what's your what's your advice? Well, I'm almost, I'm obviously biased on this because of the role that I play, but I I think my number one top tip would be to answer the phone, uh, mm. actually speak mm-hmm. with people. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. uh, we have a we have an environment where corporate leaders have become extremely cautious uh, about speaking up. I I understand why you have to mm. manage your your public image. I get it. I'm not naive about and, it. And your, but I and do your think career too, right? And for your sure, career. For sure. I mean, if, if you say the wrong thing in media, for some people, that could be uh, career limiting to say the least, right? So there is a- 100%. It, right? But I also think that there's, there's, a, there's such a thing as going too far in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And I actually mm-hmm. do think we are in that position. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I do speak to business leaders all of the time, but- mm-hmm. It's, it can be difficult when you want to put questions to companies to go beyond, you know, an emailed statement uh, yeah. where there's no yeah. possibility for follow-up questions. There's no possibility for clarification. Or the, the yeah. statement looks like it's been worked over for right. by and many I think people for many days, right? Yeah, companies have been become extremely cautious. But I think the, the flip side of that is that your caution also can go so far um, that you're actually not saying anything. You know, sometimes these mm. statements we receive are so worked over that they're they're essentially nothing dressed yeah. up as as a statement. And I do Does think that get that, your spidey senses tingling as a reporter. Yes, you're absolutely, like, oh, absolutely. And you know, mm. we don't we don't totally rely on access to mm. do our work. Mm. We mm-hmm. we have other ways of doing our work. Um, sure. You know, as as I think some of our our stories show, but. I really think it is actually incumbent on companies that, you know, that make money from Canadians, that have Canadian shareholders to be answerable for their decisions. Um, you know, I think about a story that I did in the middle of the pandemic talking about um, employees. This is in, you know, in the, in the food space, but actually in the retail space at large as well. Uh, employees not being adequately informed by many retailers about the uh, pandemic supports that were available to them to take sick days, which was in everybody's interest. Mm-hmm. It's in everyone's yep. interest not to have mm-hmm. a retail worker who is sick standing on the job and being in contact with, you know, mm-hmm. however many hundreds of people come through their store in a given day. Um, and yet these minim- many of the minimum wage workers were not always informed about yeah. their rights to, for example, provincial paid sick days when those were instituted what the policies were for sick days. In one case, I reported on a worker who was asked for uh, a PCR test to prove that she had COVID at a time when access, if you remember, to PCR tests had been really restricted, right? And so getting a private one was very expensive. And so this person was faced with a choice. Well, do I, I can't afford the PCR test. Do I decide I can afford to go without pay for this day and stay home and do the right thing? Or do I just go into work Mm. sick? And those, yeah. those are, um, I'm, that's a long rambling story to talk about the fact that that was a story where many retailers either didn't answer our questions or mm. provided statements that were quite limited. There was no opportunity to ask for follow-ups. And, and that's where I think it is important, actually, that companies' leaders pick up the phone and, and answer those questions. They should be answerable to Canadians, not only to their own employees, but to the customers who are coming into their stores. And I do think that you know, while caution is understandable, I actually think transparency has gotten lost in that equation and the value mm. of transparency. And so I think that, you know, there is an important consideration for business leaders to take about, you know, where it's appropriate, you know, more transparency, I think is warranted. And, you know, mm. that's obvious, my, obviously my bias because of the profession sure. that I'm in, but yeah. my bias is always for transparency, for sure, protect yourself and to whatever extent you can. But I, I really think that being answerable to Canadians is very, very important. And it's something that has um, diminished, I would say. Mm. Not for everyone. Uh, you know, it's it obviously differs company by company. But in the grand scheme of things, I believe it has diminished. And I think that that's something that, you know, business leaders should think about. Mm. Is is um, having people go on background or, or something that uh, won't be quoted, is that part of your tradecraft as well? Is that something that people can access or is that something that you use occasionally? Hey, we're just no quotes here, no attribution. I just need to know more about a certain trend or industry. Is that something that you or your colleagues use still? 
For sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's part mm-hmm. of our reporting. There are a lot of very careful rules about how we use background yeah. conversations, however, because, no doubt. you know, background can also be manipulated, right? You can, it can mm-hmm. be manipulated by people mm-hmm. who just want to be able to influence coverage mm-hmm. without having to put their names to something. Um, you know, one of the rules, one of the editorial rules of the Globe and Mail, for example, and I'm sure at many other, uh, journalism outlets, um, is that we don't allow people to, for example, go off the record to make ad hominem attacks. You know, if Mm, you don't want to put your name to it, I'm not going to say it for you, for example. Um, and, and we really do push people, particularly people who are media savvy, like business leaders to be on the record. We think it's very important. And so there is a lot of pushback on Mm. requests to go off the record because sometimes there's no reason for it. And sometimes, as I said before, we feel like people should be Mm. able to answer questions, but unquestionably, yes, there are times when we go on background when we're Mm. trying to find out information, particularly also we go on background with people who um, are not in leadership positions and who have, for example, reasons to fear for their jobs. Yeah. Right. Retribution mm-hmm. is a big, big thing. Um, or, you know, in, in cases of other types of stories, which are less on, on the business side of things, but in, there are cases where my colleagues will give someone um, anonymity to because they have security concerns for themselves or their families. I've seen that in some stories. What we try to do when we report that way is to explain to readers how many people have we spoken to about this? Hmm. Uh, how many sources are there informing us about this? Why have we given them anonymity? That's something we do. If you if you look at our stories, you'll always see some kind of an explanation for why yeah. someone isn't quoted by name. That's a trust issue because we mm-hmm. feel like we have a responsibility to readers to explain, here's why we've chosen in this case to allow someone to be anonymous. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's a very difficult conversation. It's something that it requires approval of an editor every single time I want to use an anonymous Mm. source in a story. I have to go to my editor. I have to discuss the the choice Mm -hmm. and we have to make a decision together and there has to be approval. So there are checks on this. We are not um, sort of out there rampantly having anonymous conversations and being loosey-goosey with it. It's very, (laughs) it's very, very controlled because it is a trust Mm. issue for us. And so sometimes it's a necessary tool to get information that is sensitive and to talk to people who want to give us information, but for whatever reason cannot be on the record. It's a tool we absolutely use, but it's one that we use very, very cautiously and with a lot of rules around it. Well, last question for me, and then I'll pass the mic to uh, Sylvain. If somebody has a big scoop for you or wants to get in touch or just has a, a perspective that uh, they want to share for your reporting, how do they get in touch? Yeah, I'm very easy to find. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but my name is a is a bit of a mouthful, and so nobody else has that name. <laughs> you just you just Google me. Um, so the my email is uh, I have an author page on the Globe and Mail website that's easy to find if you Google me, and all my contact information is there. Uh, my Twitter bio has uh, a link to that, and also um, a number for my signal contact if someone wants to reach out over um, you know a a more secure service. Um, and you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very online. So my, my email is pretty easy to find. And, um, and that, that would be how I would reach out as, you know, by email is, is usually my, the most reliable way. Excellent. Listen, Susan, thank you so much for joining the, uh, food professor podcast. I, I hope that you are a, uh, an avid listener of our podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so and, much for uh, having me. It's been it's been fun. Uh, it's been fun working with Michael the last three years, and uh, I'm so happy that you were able to uh, take some time to uh, to join us today uh, for a little chat about uh, about your craft. And uh, thank you so much for the work you're doing. It's uh, it's been great. Thank you for having me. All right, let's uh, let's wind up with a couple of quick hits. Uh, first of all, uh, Sobeys, uh, you've talked about it a couple of times. We were we were chatting about it a bunch of episodes ago. Their cyber attack. Uh, the bill has come in. The bill's come in a little higher than they thought. I guess that's not unusual once they tally up the long-term implications. What is it now? 30, the estimate $32 million hit to earnings. Uh, so cyber, cyber stuff, man, it's, it's very impactful, right? That's a lot yeah, of money. It's not, it's not the last time, unfortunately. So uh, yeah, companies have to be ready. Uh, unfortunately, it happened to Sobeys. It, it, uh, I suspect that other com- many other companies have actually been uh, subject to some attacks. And let's hope that it yeah. won't happen again. Um, yeah. Even Michael Medline himself said that, that he wouldn't uh, wish this to his 
uh, his worst enemy. Uh, speaking of paying, uh, Laval-based alimentation Couchard uh, signs a $4.7 billion deal. I mean, these things, it makes the paper, but I do think it doesn't get the, the, shun, sun, the sunshine or the exposure that it deserves. Such a great Canadian company. 2,000 service stations uh, that they bought in Europe. Uh, you know, they're just a behemoth. I, I, you know, particularly when I'm in the it's U.S. and $67 billion. You know, when I talk about Couchetard, uh <laughs> south of the border, they're like, who and where? And then when, yeah. the, the, you know, the eyes just widen when I say how big and how many stations. Like this, oh, I think yeah. that takes into like 16,000 service stations. And, you know, it, so I really want to get into convenience stores they a little buy, later. They can in buy the, Loblaws twice. I, you know? it's it, you know it's really i think On they're the credit. fourth largest i think they're the fourth largest company in canada not in the yep retail world but they're 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 a massive company i really want to get into more about c stores later we should get a guess because there, there's a lot of transformation happening in the c store category sophistication and you know going from gas to charging what that means people are there for 20 minutes you know i was in la and i was at the charging station people were doing push-ups and they had gym equipment i mean you're there for 20 minutes right so it's a Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got 20 minutes to charge your car, right? So people are doing push-ups. You know, it's L.A., right? So they're, they're getting fit. And, I never, I've never seen that. Well, wow. you've got to go. you got to go. You and I got to go to L.A. We're going to, we'll go to the places where we can see that. Um, well, one of the places what are you, you selling <laughs> when you actually get people to do push-ups? I mean, well, now that you're, you're just like time, right? You got time. You, it's, not a quick, it's not a quick thing, you right? You got to sell Slurpees or sandwiches or something. I mean, well, that's, I think that's, you sell – That's Kostal's forte, converting fuel yeah. dollars into food dollars. And well, so yeah. with plugging – with uh, with uh, more electric cars, that's the one thing they're gonna have to really figure out. And they've tried to buy Carrefour last year; it didn't work. My guess is that they're on the hunt right now. They're just getting wow. bigger. They're buying. They just bought a company uh, that uh, that's in the business. They understand. They know. But eventually, I think Kostar will actually have to kind of pivot a little bit. They're going to run out of people to buy at this rate, basically in the same category. I mean, you know, exactly. unless they buy like somebody like from uh, Berkshire Hathaway, like Pilot J, which is another yeah. you know big chain, very well run actually. Pilot J, um, Wild Wings admits their boneless chicken wings are not actually wings after all. It's true they admit uh, they what? are in, a, in an unusual tactic in defending a lawsuit. They say you're right; <laughs> they are not chicken wings. They are chunks of chicken, but we call them boneless chicken wings. Uh, so other other interesting news: <laughs> Kit Kat cereal debuting in the UK next month. That's right, you'll be able to have Kit, Kit Kat, Kat cereal, uh, which they describe as a uh, a luxurious treat. I would uh, agree. It's part of your healthy breakfast. And last but not least, Kellogg's has announced finally they're breaking apart some of their divisions. So, so they're putting a snack division together. So it's got Cheez Its and Prince and Pringles, and they've come up with a new name. Wait for it. Kellanova. It is called Kellanova. So I can only imagine a branding agency and how much they are were you paid. Making, are you making this up? I I I, I shit you not. Uh, Kellogg's April first is coming, so I'm just just making sure here. <laughs> That's right. They took somebody took Kellogg's and Latin for new and put them together, and they came up with Kellanova. Uh, God bless uh, branding consultants. All right. Well, that's a wrap oh my on God. today's, uh, <laughs> this week's episode. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer growth consultant, podcaster, keynote speaker, and you are? Sylvain Chalabot, a food professor. All right. Great episode. And uh, talk to you next week. And for everybody, make sure and, uh, you know, when you have the opportunity, uh, rate and review the podcast because then more people get to hear it and uh, the higher the ratings go. Uh, but other than that, everybody travel safe. Take care.